keep your eye on Mark Meadows and see what he does because he's a linchpin of a lot of what the committee is trying to get at. I think he's a critical player in this. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Earlier this month, the Justice Department charged 11 defendants, including the leader of the Oath Keepers, with seditious conspiracy charges related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. We've spoken with award-winning journalist Scott McFarlane several times about the January 6th investigations and prosecutions, but after this new round of charges, I wanted to add a different layer of perspective, that of a prosecutor, to understand what these charges could mean, what prosecutors will need to prove as they move forward toward trial, and how to think about some of the other legal issues around the DOJ prosecutions and the January 6th committee. Then, in a conversation just for our Politicology Plus listeners, we're going to talk about the potential legal jeopardy Trump may face for his business and personal financial affairs and how that's shaping up. I'm excited to welcome former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin back to the show. While at the Department of Justice, Michael held several senior positions, including Deputy Chief of the Narcotics and Dangerous Drug Section. Chief of the Money Laundering and Asset Forfeiture Offices and Special Counsel for Money Laundering Matters to then-Assistant Attorney General Robert Mueller. He is also a prolific television legal analyst and the host of the podcast, That Said, with Michael Zeldin. Michael, welcome back to Politicology, and thank you for making time to take us on a deep dive into this bubbling swamp of legal problems facing the ex-president. Well, thank you so much, Ron, for having me back. It's a pleasure, and I will do my best. Why don't we start with the seditious conspiracy charges, which have uh, garnered lots of headlines lately. So January 12th, the DOJ filed seditious conspiracy charges against the Oath Keepers founder, Stuart Rhodes, along with 10 other people. Can you begin by giving us some context around this charge, help us understand what the statute is here, how it's being applied, and why these charges are significant. So a seditious conspiracy, as applied to this case, requires that the prosecutor prove that the defendant, using force, endeavored to hinder or delay the execution of any law of the United States. So by force, they're trying to prevent the execution of any law. In this case, it has been alleged that the law that they were hindering or delaying was the certification of the vote count to Biden. And by force, the storming of the Capitol, these guys endeavored to do that. You don't have to achieve it in a conspiracy. You just have to take affirmative steps to achieve it, and you have to have two or more people who are in agreement. And so the allegation here is that a group of people, some who stayed outside of the Capitol and some who went into the Capitol, did so with an agreement, a conspiracy, to, by their force, stop the certification of the electoral count and thereby throw the election into, I don't know where, Netherland. Um, and that's what formed the basis of the charges against them. It's significant because it's the first charges where one of the defendants never went into the Capitol. 
there's another charge that has been brought against some of the other people, which is conspiracy to obstruct a congressional proceeding. And like the seditious conspiracy, it requires that there be a proceeding and that the accused be aware of that proceeding and that he endeavors to obstruct that proceeding with bad purpose. The people who did that obstruction were really the people who were inside. So the difference between the obstruction conspiracy and the sedition conspiracy is that the sedition conspiracy included for the first time people who were not inside the Capitol. Basically, they don't have to have been successful in the crime. The attempt is what's at stake here. All they have to prove is a serious attempt. So this is like attempted murder versus a murder charge. Correct. It's the endeavoring to do it. It's you have the agreement. You and I agree that we're going to rob the bank. You're going to drive the getaway car. I'm going to go in and say, put your hands up and put the money in the bag. The robbery is foiled. That doesn't mean that we're therefore off the hook because, <laughs> hey, we didn't, we didn't get the money. So, you know, no, no foul, no harm. We are um, still charged with the crime. So here, the same thing. They didn't succeed. They, they actually did succeed in delaying the count. But ultimately, the count went through and Biden was um, made president. But that's what the charge is. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And that's helpful. So far, the longest sentence for someone involved in the attack has been about five years. And according to Lawrence Tribe, these charges could result in a 20-year sentence, significantly higher than anything we've seen so far uh, in terms of the, the stakes in sentencing. Can you help us understand just how much more serious the repercussions could be for these charges? Right. The Tribe is correct that the statute provides, if convicted, a maximum of 20 years in prison. That doesn't mean that the individuals who are convicted would get 20 years, but that's the statutory maximum. So when you have a statutory maximum, say, of five years under the federal system, you'll get three, four-ish years. If you have a statutory maximum of 20 years and there are aggravating factors as there were here, you could get eight to 12 years easily. So it really can double or triple the sentence you will get, which prosecutors often bring these types of more serious charges, one, because they reflect the conduct that was undertaken, but also they serve as an incentive to others to cooperate rather than face the same types of more serious charges. So seeing these charges filed now, um, in that case, how does it shape your perception of where the Justice Department is in, in sifting through all the evidence and, and seeking indictments, um, considering that they have lower charges available to them. Uh, do you anticipate seeing more? Well, this prosecution is proceeding like most large, complex prosecutions, which is first low-hanging fruit, acquire evidence as best you can from those who have been charged with those offenses testimony and documents and move your way up the food chain. As you move up rung by rung, the charges tend to get more serious. And so we're at the point now where this is probably the most serious charge that that could be filed for the January 6th events. The question then becomes who else falls within the purview of this statute so that we can see whether or not it stops with this 
oath keeper or whether it goes to anybody else with whom the oath keepers may have also had a conspiratorial agreement. And the severity of the sentencing being uh, significantly higher here, potentially, than, than, than the other charges, do you think that will lead to more success in flipping more people who have otherwise not been cooperating? Or, or uh, that seems to be a, a, the approach that the prosecutors are taking. Do you think that'll be successful? In the ordinary course, yes. So in my tenure as a prosecutor, when we had large narcotics conspiracies where there were serious charges, when we started bringing or convicting or obtaining pleas to the more serious charges, there was a cascading effect of people cooperating in order to avoid the most serious charges. What's hard to know in this case is, especially with people like the Oath Keepers, they're they're driven by ideology. And whereas most crime is driven driven by greed, um, this is driven by ideology. And so you don't know whether or not they're going to be standing more firm as a consequence of, of this serious charge. You know, how dare you charge me with sedition when all I was trying to do was take back our country from the theft that was the 2020 election? Or do they behave like a more normal criminal to say, I don't want to go to jail for 12 years and I'm going to cooperate and I'm going to talk about who else I was conspiring with in order to lessen my sentence. Hard to know in this case. So I would think that the Oath Keepers, being motivated by ideology, stand apart from Trump and his inner circle, the people in it, uh, where where I would, I would put the motivating uh, energy in that circle being, as loyalty. Right, loyalty to the president above everything else. At least that's what we have seen. And so, I wonder, you know, in your opinion, will these charges help us get a better understanding of the potential involvement by Trump or the people immediately surrounding him, or are they not after that just yet? Well, it's hard to know. Merrick Garland and the Justice Department has been anything but transparent. So, when these charges came, they came as a bit of a surprise. But if I were to sort of look at tea leaves, the people that I would think would be next on the radar of the Justice Department are the people who were in the war room at the Willard Hotel. So if you look, for example, at who was saying what and when, Steve Bannon, before the insurrection, was saying, strap in. This is going to be nothing like you've ever seen before. If you're expecting this to be, you know, sort of a normal kumbaya, peaceful protest, think again. Mm. So how does he come to have that opinion? With whom was he speaking? And does that imply conspiratorial agreement or at least knowledge of what the Oath Keepers were going to do? Similarly, Roger Stone was using the Oath Keepers as his security guard. And one wonders- I don't know how I missed that. Well, that's what I, I didn't. I didn't know that. There's, there's so much to keep track of here, and so much information. So I just, I had no idea. But yeah, 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 yeah. I, so, I, so not surprised. Yeah. So those guys um, seem to have had at least Bannon for sure, and and Stone less clear. But he was hanging around with the Oath Keepers, and in the in the days and 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 hours and weeks before the assault. Now. 
he has said, um, Roger Stone has said, well, I never went into the Capitol. I was just here at the Willard minding my own business. Well, the sedition conspiracy says that doesn't get you off the hook mm. because the leader of the Oath Keepers who was charged wasn't in the Capitol either, but nonetheless, he's charged. If you were, you know, again, back to the statute, if there is an agreement between two or more people to undertake an act for which there are some steps taken, you're part of that conspiracy and it doesn't make a difference where you are. Again, back to our bank robbery analogy, you and I are going mm -hmm. to be the people who go to the bank and rob it, but we're in agreement with a third person who is, if you will, the mastermind. Um, yeah. And so the mastermind stays home. You and I go out to the bank. All three of us are chargeable with a conspiracy to rob that bank. So Roger Stone, Steve Bannon at all, could have been in Russia for all we know. Uh, it doesn't matter physically where they were, whether they entered Capitol grounds, they, they still can be just as much um, liable for the same charges of, of seditious conspiracy. Because the conspiracy is an agreement and then a, a step in furtherance of that agreement. And surely there were steps here and there clearly seems to be an agreement uh, at least within the Oath Keeper organization, that they were going to storm that capital and stop the steal. Last thing on my mind before we leave seditious conspiracy is uh, the reality that these charges are rarely brought uh, by the DOJ. And I, I, I don't know when the last time would have been. And that is because they're very difficult to prove, right? They're very difficult to win. First of all, why are they so difficult uh, to win? And what does the body language of the prosecution tell you about their confidence um, with these charges? So this statute has, the seditious conspiracy statute, has two or three different elements to it. One is you conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the United States or levy war against it. Another one is by force you take possession of property of the United States contrary to its um, authority or to the authority. Those are really hard to prove that somebody with bad intent conspired to destroy by force the government of the United States. Those cases are not easily won. The middle one here, though, is by force prevent or hinder the, the, the execution of any law. That seems a much more straightforward charge. Was there a law? Yes. The transfer of power. Did they endeavor to delay it? In fact, they did um, delay it. Did they use force? Yes, they used force. Was there a conspiracy one that predated January 6th and then continued on past January 6th, yes, the evidence shows that it was a continuing conspiracy. So it wasn't a spur of the moment event that people say, well, that really wasn't a conspiracy. It was just an ad hoc in the moment, you know, charge the Capitol. Because after the events, they were still scheming to figure out how to continue their efforts. So all of that, I think, gives the prosecutors confidence that. In this particular set of facts, the seditious conspiracy charge is a strong one. I, I know I said last question, but I have one more. What about precedent? 
because January 6th was in many ways, and maybe in all ways, an, an unprecedented event. Um, and I and I wonder if there's any precedent for these charges that prosecutors are looking at, or if sort of, you know, from a jurisprudential standpoint, are we in uncharted waters? Most of the sedition cases that I've seen involve the overthrow of the government prong of the of the statute. They've charged Puerto Rican nationalists with it back in the days of Eugene Debs and the socialists around World War I. They charged them with sedition to overthrow the government. Um, those, are, those are politically charged um, and often brought with bad purpose as far as I'm concerned. I don't like the sedition mm. statute and especially don't like it as it's been used. But as I said, because this is this unique hinder or delay execution of law clause, I think that there isn't much precedent and the law itself seems pretty much on all fours with the conduct of the defendants. But they'll always find, you, you can if you have good counsel, you'll always find um, a defense. So for example, it says, delay the execution of any law of the United States. Maybe they'll take the position that the certification of the votes is not the execution of a law, and therefore this, mm. the the charges fail on this technical definition of what is the execution of a law. But assuming that the transfer of power laws, the counting of the votes and the certification of the vote, is a law that is being executed, then they seem to meet pretty clearly the hinder, delay, by force elements of the statute. Okay. Uh, anything else on this particular charge that we need to know about? I think that we've covered it. The The thing to keep your eye on is who else, if anybody, was involved in this conspiracy. So whether there is another rung up the ladder um, is what I'm keeping my eyes on. Let's move to obstruction of Congress. So back in December, Liz Cheney, uh, the vice chair of the January 6th committee asked if Trump, through action or inaction, sought to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes, what we're talking about now. That was a question they needed to answer. And according to Politico, uh, she borrowed language from the criminal obstruction statute. So can you lay out what the actual statute is for obstruction of a congressional hearing and how it could apply to Trump or even to members of Congress, because she seemed to be very intentional about the language she chose, almost as if she was signaling to the Justice Department, hey, this is this is what you should be thinking about, because we believe we will provide evidence. So this is complicated because, again, in the in the ordinary course of what is obstructive conduct. You think of affirmative acts. I obstruct you from walking down the street by standing in the way. I obstruct a congressional proceeding by taking affirmative steps to obstruct that proceeding, as we saw the protesters, you know, the insurrectionists on January 6th. By inaction is not normal for, the, for a charging documents. So Congresswoman Cheney did say, was anyone culpable by inaction? And it would seem to me 
that that's a very hard case to make. And you'd probably have to establish that the inaction was part of the active modus operandi of the of the crime. So for example, hypothetically, Trump knows all about this plan to uh, um, attack the Capitol. He's all in on it. So he's got the same conspiratorial mindset. Do we agree? January 6th, you guys are going to go in there and stop the steal, and they're going to send it back with this uh, Green Bay end around, and we'll get the false you know, so I'm in. I'm Donald Trump, and I'm all in. And they say, "Fine, um, you're all in. What's your role?" And his role is, "I am not going to call it off. I am not going to call in the National Guard. I am not going to, you know, call in, you know, reinforcements. I'm not going to act to try to stop you from doing this. I'm going to essentially violate my oath." of office to faithfully execute the laws of the United States. I'm not going to do that. That level of inaction, in theory, could rise to, you know, be sort of like transformed into affirmative action. You have a, a, a duty to act and you don't act and you don't act so that the crime can proceed successfully. Then I think maybe you have something to argue about. But it's not a simple case, Ron. And I, I watched her say that. I looked at the statute and I thought, geez, this statute says there must be a proceeding before the Department of, uh, uh, before Department of Agency of the United States. There was a proceeding, the counting of the votes. The accused must be aware of that proceeding. Everybody was aware that, that was going on. And the accused must have intentionally endeavored corruptly to influence, obstruct, or impede that proceeding. So that requirement of the accused must intentionally endeavor to corruptly obstruct, to me, implies an affirmative act, not, not a failure to act. But as we've just hypothesized, there could be a structure by which inaction becomes action. But I think if I were the Justice Department, I would be much more comfortable bringing a case as was brought against the first group of Oath Keepers, which was they affirmatively, with corrupt intent, obstructed the the um, proceedings in, in the Congress, not that they failed to act. I was originally thinking about this as an average citizen's obligation legal obligation to report a federal crime that they're aware of or that they witness, right? That's, that's, um, uh, if you fail to do that, that is technically a violation of federal law. Is that right? Well, so this is interesting. We have generally speaking, no good Samaritan statute that requires us to intervene in, to, to prevent a crime or even to report a crime. There are certain people who have who are mandated to report crimes. So uh, firemen are required, psychologists, when the patient says, I'm going to kill my next door neighbor because he's driving me insane, that there's a mandatory reporting obligation. There are certain people who have mandatory obligations, but you and I, as you know, sort of average citizens, don't have that obligation. And so it's not clear to me um, how 
to go back to the point, it's not clear to me how in inaction, failure failure to be a good Samaritan um, rises to criminal conduct. But in this case, what's different about the president of the United States and or members of Congress is that they take an oath of office to um, protect and defend the Constitution, and the president has to faithfully execute um, the laws. And so maybe with that affirmative obligation, their oath allows a construct by which their inaction, their failure to comply with their oath of office can become uh, an affirmative criminal act. I haven't seen that sort of prosecution. Um, I, if I were the prosecutor, I'd be very nervous about bringing that sort of prosecution against, especially an ex-president. An ex-president. But I think that's how Liz Cheney is trying to construct this. But but I wasn't I wasn't convinced by that. I know all the um, chatter after she said that was, oh great, we're going to prove that Donald Trump watched the TV on January sixth, did nothing, his doing nothing is going to get him charged with a crime. I didn't reach that conclusion. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so essentially, if this charge uh, is going to be um, leveled and successful, it would have to hinge on uh, the connection to conspiracy, right? The connection to um, knowing in advance that something was going to happen and and having having a role in it that that the that the inaction would have to have a role in the in the grander scheme broadly speaking yes you'd have to have an agreement um a common purpose uh, an agreement to that common person purpose and then affirmative steps in 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 furtherance of it and as we speculated there seems the possibility of a construct that inaction could become action under certain circumstances but that's not normal all those people out there who is who are hoping that Donald Trump's watching TV gleefully as the um, insurrectionists went about their way is going to somehow magically become a criminal obstruction charge may be disappointed. Yeah. Okay. I mean, as much as you know, I, I, it's, there are so many people who want to see Donald Trump, you know, personally prosecuted. Um, it, it, I guess I'm trying to tri- triangulate. Uh, around where that might be most likely to happen if it does happen uh, and what the path toward that scenario uh, looks like. Um, and, it, you know, what would prosecutors have to do? Um, yeah, I, and I understand uh, the the exceedingly difficult position Merrick Garland is in uh, with regard to the political sensitivity of such a charge, such a prosecution. How rock solid would the case have to be uh, for them to prosecute a former president directly in that way? I would think airtight that they would have to have testimony from a co-conspirator that is um, supportable by other tangible evidence that there was this agreement that the former president was part of and there are people who who are able to testify to that who will be believed. So I don't think you would bring a prosecution like this with no, um, I don't mean any disrespect, but I don't think you'd bring a prosecution like this solely on the testimony of Michael Cohen. He's too damaged a witness. 
um, to, to bring it. And I don't know that you'd necessarily even bring this on the basis of one oath keeper without some sort of documentary evidence to support the testimony. Because you always have the problem of when somebody is facing a long period of time in jail and they're given an opportunity to reduce their sentence by cooperating, that they'll say anything that they think the prosecutor wants to hear to mitigate their own sentence. The problem that the prosecutor has is, can that testimony be supported in, in some other way? We saw that in the Mueller um, prosecutions, where you had Gates cooperating against Manafort, and the post-jury verdict seemed to say that Gates' testimony was not really very um, well-received by the jury. It seemed too self-interested and less based on objective knowledge of what Manafort did. That's a real problem here, especially where your star witness could be the Oath Keepers. So even if you do have testimony and evidence, it has to pass an optical test as well, essentially. Well, it has to pass an optical test, a political test. Do you, you know, if you're... That's what I mean by optics. Right, exactly. You go back to... Gerald Ford trying to figure out whether or not Nixon should be prosecuted or or pardoned. At what point do you say enough's enough? We've got to put the Nixon behavior behind us. We've got to put the Trump behavior behind us because until we do, we can't make progress. And if we charge him, what does that mean? That means for the next two to four years, we're going to be living this litigation? And is that in the country's best interest? So those types of decisions, I think, will um, be on Merrick's desk. Were there evidence sufficient to to charge um, the former president? I have to imagine he's already thinking about that eventuality, and it's got to be weighing on him. I think he was thinking about that eventuality before he was confirmed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is what I'm going to have to do. Let's talk about the uh, Supreme Court decision on the documents. So last week, the Supreme Court cleared the way for the January 6th committee to receive White House documents relating to the attack. It's expected to include call logs from the day of the attack, uh, drafts of speeches, and handwritten notes. So as we are you know, talking now about uh, how, how far up the conspiracy potentially went, what evidence we might be able to gather. Uh, This seems extremely important. Can you set the table for how this fight over executive privilege uh, played out and the significance of this ruling? Yeah, sure. In this case, the former president said when receiving a request for documents that the National Archives was holding on to, that I object to the release of these documents, they're executive privilege protected, meaning they are conversations I had with key advisors in my administration when I was president, and I am not going to let them be released. Biden said, I'm happy to have them be released. We're in extraordinary circumstances, and those overtake the need for privacy. And Mark Meadows and Kevin McCarthy and others 
refused to testify before the committee in certain measure because they said the executive privilege claim has to be resolved. Who's right, Trump or Biden? Who who holds the privilege? And until you do that, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna cooperate with you. Um, well, so they didn't, and the case went to the Supreme Court, and in a vote of eight to one, only Clarence Thomas dissenting, no written opinion, just the, uh, an order saying that uh, executive privilege does not apply in this case as Trump sought it to apply. There, by allowing the National Archives to give over all of those documents that you just mentioned, and clearing the way for Mark Meadows and others who refused to testify on the basis of this executive privilege fight to have to testify because there's no plausible reason for them not to. They could theoretically take the Fifth Amendment or, as Kevin McCarthy did say, the committee is illegitimate and I'm not going to cooperate with an illegitimate committee. But the significance of the case is it clears the path for those who refused to testify on this executive privilege fight claim to now cooperate. And it provides the opportunity for the committee to get all these documents the National Archives have been holding, and we'll see how material they are to a determination of criminal wrongdoing. But more importantly for the committee, because they're not conducting a criminal investigation, we always have to remember they're not prosecutors. They are investigating the events to, to, to determine whether or not there should be changes in the law to prevent this from happening again. People talk about this all the time as, as if it was a, uh, a federal prosecutor's office. Congress can't do that. We learned that from um, the McCarthy era, that you can't, you can't use the Congress to do what only the executive branch um, should do. Uh, so it may be relevant to what Congress is trying to do, figure out what happened so that they can pass laws to prevent it from happening again. But assuming the Justice Department is looking at this, then it may provide a window into the intent, the knowledge and intent of those people in the White House. And that's where it's relevant from a prosecutor's standpoint. Yeah, we have made that distinction before, and thank you for making it again, because it's important. I think it gets lost in most of the mainstream news coverage. Liz Cheney has no prosecutorial authority whatsoever, and uh, and the context of this um, investigation is, is, is entirely legislative. Um, exactly. When you see the leads on yeah. some shows that say, <laughs> Congress is closing in on Trump, well, yeah, their their business is not about <laughs> closing in on anybody. They're closing in on right. understanding the story so they can figure out yeah. what to do to prevent it from happening right. again. The Justice right. Department closes in on people. Right, which is why we're spending so much time talking about the actual prosecutions uh, and the actual legal hot water uh, getting hotter. So uh, with regard to this, um, this ruling, um, I, I'm wondering how we should expect this to impact uh, subpoenaed witnesses like Mark Meadows, chief of staff, or Steve Bannon, who have claimed executive privilege. Do they? Are we now uh, in a in a in a place where we're relying on them to cooperate, or do these documents uh, um, transfer immediately? What happens automatically now as a result of this um, this decision, and what is 
uh, still pending someone else's willingness to cooperate? The documents go over immediately. The National Archives will release them, and they will go straight to the committee with no interference. The testimony of Mark Meadows, for example, who said, I would love to talk, talk to you, but there's this executive privilege fight, and until that's over, I, just, I really can't do it. Similar to, remember, John Bolton, who was asked to talk mm-hmm. about the Ukrainian phone call, and he said, oh, I, I can't do that until the executive privilege um, debate is settled, or I write my book and I talk about it in the context of, of, of book promotions. Yeah, um, yeah, or the latter. Yeah, I, 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 I say cynically, and I apologize for that. But Mark Meadows, <laughs> um, now the reason for his failure to cooperate has been eliminated, and so he has to make a decision: Is he true to his word? He's got a good lawyer in George Terwilliger. Will George say to him, "Hey, Mark, look"? Um, you 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 stood by uh, the executive privilege claim, fair enough. But the president, former president, lost. Now you have to testify because if you don't, Congress has a very good reason to hold you in um, contempt. contempt and refer the contempt. They may have already held him in contempt, but hold the, hold you in contempt and refer to the Justice Department for prosecution. And so he, he's got to make that decision. I would hope that he would make the decision to to cooperate now that he has no sort of legal basis for failing to cooperate but again these are these are people who are driven by you know forces that are different than normal people charged with bad behavior because there's all sorts of political calculations how does this affect my career do i want to run again for another office do i want to seek appointment is this career ending if i turn on Trump? Um, or is it you know, career enhancing if I go to jail and, and don't, mm. uh, don't talk? It's so hard to sort out what these politicians' calculus is for determining what they're, they're going to do. They should, they should all be cooperating. There shouldn't be anything that is a legal impediment or a moral ethical impediment. They're not the same as you and me. You know, it was it, F. Scott Fitzgerald, didn't he say the rich are different? And I sometimes think that um, maybe H.L. Mencken or somebody said the politicians are different too. <laughs> I think that's right. There's, uh, speaking of subpoenas, there's been a lot of news about the ones issued by the committee. And, and I want to dive into a couple of them in a minute. But we've also seen the committee ask Jim Jordan and Scott Perry, the, the two House members, and Ivanka Trump to voluntarily cooperate. Um, so why would the committee choose to ask them to cooperate before issuing a subpoena? Well, it's always better in this situation to get voluntary cooperation because then there's no obstacle to it. Everybody agrees it's um, voluntary. Um, if they choose not to, as they have, then they have to figure out, does Congress have the authority to subpoena a sitting member of Congress? And many legal um, constitutional scholars say they do. They do that in the context of House ethics investigations 
for example, can subpoena a person before the Health Ethics Committee. Um, but it's not clear whether uh, they can do that here. Some argue that the speech and debate clause, which prevents um, people from being held accountable for what they say on the floor of, of Congress, um, some argue that that might apply here. Others say it doesn't. So there's debate about the legal authority of Congress to subpoena a sitting member of Congress. And if we learned anything from the Mueller investigation is that the people who are going to be in the crosshairs of these types of requests are going to litigate as best they're able to, uh, one, maybe for the principle of it, but two, certainly to delay in the hopes that the committee goes away uh, after the midterm elections, which is always this big, um, you know, sort of sword hanging over the the committee, the possibility that if the House turns over, that the new um, Speaker of the House calls this to a conclusion. So they want to run out the clock, and it's not clear that if they subpoenaed Jordan and Perry, uh, that, I mean, there's a potential that that fight alone could take all the oxygen out of the investigation. Well, it could take all, they could run out the clock for sure. Uh, I don't know that they're critical players. I expect that they know a lot about what what those guys said from other people. Uh, they're different than Meadows because Meadows was really, if, if you think of a, a, a wheel with spokes coming into the hub, he's mm-hmm. really part of that hub. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. those other guys are really more spokes. And so of all the people, if I could pick one of the current congressmen or former Congress members to get the testimony of, it, it would be Meadows. Meadows is the guy you want. Meadows is who everybody was texting on that day. Exactly. Because Donald Trump famously doesn't text or didn't text, and uh, including Fox News anchors texting him. Yeah. Um, yep. If he was, he, he showed, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So we've covered uh, Jordan and Perry, but I want to return to Ivanka Trump briefly because she's also been asked to voluntarily cooperate. Um, Can you let us know how you see that? Yes. Ivanka Trump really is at the heart of the understanding of what was going on on January 6th. It's been reported that as the insurrection was unfolding and Ivanka was watching it on television in her upstairs uh, White House office, she was so worried about this that she twice implored her father to call it to a stop. And the reporting is that he refused. So she, like Mark Meadows, is at the heart of understanding Trump's inaction, to go back to that conversation, his inaction on January 6th and what it was that people were imploring him to do and what it was that he didn't do. So as I say, like Mark Meadows, she's right there in this hub of people who were with her father on that day, who were speaking to him about what was unfolding and can speak to his state of mind, his intentions. So she becomes a very important player in understanding knowledge and intent, which are critical components to any criminal prosecution. Okay, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell were she of Kraken fame, we should remind our listeners, were also served with subpoenas from the January 6th committee. Um, 
So can you explain how you're thinking about these subpoenas and what they say about the scope of the inquiry? Because, you know, after the election, Giuliani and Powell were very vocal that they were Trump's lawyers. So I think most people might wonder how attorneys could be compelled to testify. Well, as to the conversations between the attorney and the client, assuming they were acting as attorneys and not political advisors, then they may have a viable claim as to that being privileged and not producible. However, both of them, Powell and and Giuliani, and the third lawyer, whose name I'm not remembering, did lots of things beside talk to the president. We saw this the revelations, I think just overnight, that they were the forces behind the creation of these fictitious electors that would be mm. brought in um, to give the election to Trump. Remember that th- this this new revelation is it shows the the scope of the conduct that the team was after. The theory is Mike Pence says, you know what, there's election fraud here. I am not going to certify. I'm not going to allow this certification to go forward. I'm going to send it back to the state legislatures for them to take another look. Well, all of those looks had been taken in the courts and there was no fraud. But what Giuliani and Powell are accused of doing in the media, they're accused of it, is having created a separate set of electors, sort of alternative electors, so that when the Pence blockage went and the referral went back to the legislatures, the legislatures would then send forward these alternate electors who nobody elected, and they would vote for Trump. And so Giuliani was part of this, this you know, very um, cynical scheme to get these false electors certified and vote for Trump. Now, all of that stuff is their behavior. That's not covered by attorney-client privilege. That is, what did you do? Who did you talk to? What was your objective? All of that stuff doesn't implicate communications between a lawyer and a client. And also, we know that Giuliani and um, Sidney Powell and others were part of the perpetration of and the perpetuation of the big lie, which was the predicate for the January 6th Stop the Steal rally and insurrection. And so they want to know from them, what were you doing? Um, and we see that already in the lawsuits that are pending against Giuliani and Sidney Powell by the voting machine Dominion, the voting machine company Dominion. Um, and so they want to know, what did you do? What were you, how were you perpetrating this big lie? Because we want to make sure as Congress, this can't happen again, that we have guardrails in place to prevent this type of Behavior. So all of that stuff is very relevant to the origins of the big lie, the perpetration, perpetuation of the big lie, and the remember it was Giuliani who said, "Let's have trial by combat at the Stop the Steal rally." So he they want to know 
all about what he did and sort of what, what he said to the president is seemingly just a small part of why they have an interest in him. Okay, so let's. I want to focus a little bit more on Giuliani for a minute, and let me just um, summarize, uh, sort of back up and summarize the 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 story you're talking about, the the more recent revelation, um, which is this growing drumbeat uh, about the efforts to put illegitimate electors from seven states, uh, and those seven states are Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, Arizona. Wisconsin, Nevada, and New Mexico, uh, states that Trump lost, Trump allies in those states sent fake certificates to the National Archives, declaring that Trump won in states he actually lost. Uh, And CNN reported that Rudy Giuliani and his allies coordinated the process on a state-by-state basis. That's what he's being accused of in the media that you mentioned, right? They they even reported that there were multiple planning calls between Trump uh, campaign officials and Republican state operatives, and that Giuliani also participated in at least one of these calls. So if this turns out to be true, um, and there's sufficient evidence uh, of his participation and, and coordination, what legal jeopardy might Giuliani face uh, for his role in in the, the in the fake certificates, well, there could be state and there could be federal implications. The Michigan Attorney General, um, Attorney General Nessel, said that submitting a forged public record um, violates Michigan law. There are two statutes: forgery of a public record, which is a fourteen-year offense, and election law forgery, which is a five-year offense. So. The, the the creation of false affidavits, which were then submitted as if they were real, could violate, in this case, Michigan law. It also could be, depending on whether there was any sort of certification that this is true, a violation of the federal false statements laws. So there's a lot to be looked into about the origins of these alternative electors scheme and what exactly was filed, and does that constitute a violation of these state or federal laws that we just talked about? What's interesting, you you articulated all of the states that were involved. One state, I think there were two actually, but one state, Pennsylvania, I believe it was, said, whoa, whoa we are not going to submit these affidavits because they're not true. They're they're not. Right. They're not. These are these were not electors. The, these are right. alternate electors. And so our certification says, in the event that the real electors can't serve as real electors, we are ready to serve as alternate electors. Now, that's a, a lawyered up answer, which I think is actually very protective mm. of those mm. the ones who said, we are the real electors and here's a false yeah. certificate establishing it, those are the ones who are um, more in harm's way. Okay, Georgia. (laughs) We're almost done. Last week, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis uh, requested to seat a special grand jury in her probe into Trump's efforts to overturn the state's election. 
Can you start by laying out the role and the function of the grand jury uh, and then explain the advantages of paneling a special grand jury? Sure. In this case, the Fulton District Attorney, uh, Willis, has been investigating the Trump phone call of all I need is 11,780 votes and you to declare that there was fraud and the Republican-led congressman will take it from here. That was the phone call that was recorded and it's been played over and over. And the mandate of the attorney of the district attorney for Georgia is, did that violate Georgia election laws? Was that um, an effort to uh, illegally induce some type of election fraud? And so she's been, for the past months, talking to witnesses who have been cooperating with her on a voluntary basis. But there are some key players, like um, Raffensperger, the yeah Brad Raffensperger, who um, wants to cooperate with her, but has said effectively, in order for me to do that, I need to be subpoenaed. I need the the mandatory obligation to come in. I really don't feel I have the authority to come in on my own because I'm still a state elected official. And so Raffensperger said yeah. that. And so he said, I'd like to, but I, I this is the this is the this is the way in which I can do it. And so what Willis has said to the chief judge of Fulton County Court that gives the authority to convene grand juries, um, what she has said to him is, look, I need this special purpose grand jury so that I can issue these subpoenas to obtain the testimony uh, that I need to determine whether or not this phone call and other related acts violated Georgia election law. And I expect that she should get it. And this will be a grand jury that will take testimony through a mandatory subpoena process and gather it up into a you know, a, a packet. And if they believe that there is violations of criminal law contained within it, it will then be referred to a, a grand jury that could issue indictments. So this grand jury doesn't issue indictments. It's just a fact gathering grand jury. It lasts, it lasts for a longer period of time than a normal grand jury. Um, and it will be singularly focused on this case. Whereas grand juries in the ordinary course, here, you know, one case after the next, as different prosecutors come in, I want you, grand jury, to talk to talk to you about this car theft. I want you, grand jury, to talk to you about this drug deal. And they sit there for multiple types of cases. The special grand jury would be solely focused on this election law violation and would have the authority to subpoena people to obtain that testimony. That's what that's what she's all about. She's not signaling that there is a crime that she's um, uh, resolved has been committed, but rather in order to reach that decision, I need the mandatory subpoena powers that the special grand jury um, allow for. And now we're waiting for the chief judge of the Fulton County Superior Court to decide whether they'll grant her that grand jury authority, which I think they should, and then she'll investigate. And then we'll know in a couple of months, probably whether or not that violated the laws of Georgia or not. Okay. So we'll bookmark this one. Um, uh, and certainly bookmark the electors, uh, because neither of these are fully baked yet, but we'll be coming back to them for sure. 
in the electors case, I think what you're going to start seeing is a lot of attorneys general doing what the district attorney in Georgia is, which is convening grand juries to investigate whether or not mm. these this false electors scheme violated state law. Okay. Uh, and that's also important to consider in the context of the increased efforts by Republicans at the state level to take over these the Secretary of State's positions uh, in in states all over the country, especially in swing states. Okay, Michael Zeldin, this has been wonderful. Um, is there anything that we haven't gotten to uh, that you think is important uh, that our listeners need to be aware of? I think we've covered everything. I think, though, if the last thing is to say, so, in sum, keep your eye on Mark Meadows and see what he does, because he's a linchpin of a lot of what the committee is trying to uh, get at. And so I think if I would, I would keep my eye, from the January 6th side of this, I would keep my eye on him first, because... I think he's a critical player in this. Before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet? On the internet, it I am. <laughs> so my podcast is called That Said with Michael Zeldin, which mostly is not about politics. <laughs> it's about books and, and, and authors. And really, I mean, I, I have a, a I, I am at Michael Zeldin on Twitter, but I don't really tweet other than to say, I was on TV today, or I, I don't engage in conversation. I don't, I don't participate in Instagram or TikTok. On Facebook, I'll say, oh, here's a great song by Bob Dylan, or happy birthday, Neil Young. But I don't engage on social media. So if people want to- um, You are engage, probably saner for if it. If they want to engage with me, they got to sort of come over. Find me in Washington, D.C. We'll have coffee at Starbucks or something. We should do that actually sometime soon. Great. But 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 uh, but the, the, the thing great. that I'm spending most of my time is on this. That said, with Michael Zeldin, and people can find what I'm up to by listening to that. Terrific on the iTunes, uh, Apple Podcast, iTunes, Spotify, all of those platforms. Great, excellent, Michael. It'd be a pleasure to have you back. Anytime. I'd be delighted. Thank you for having me. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.